So tonight's first reading comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 56, on page 676, starting from verse 3. No foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. And the eunuch should not say, look, I am a dried up tree. For the Lord says this, for the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, and choose what pleases me, and hold firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name. They will never be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord minister to him, love the name of Yahweh, and become his servants. All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it And who hold firmly to my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is the declaration of the Lord God, who gathers the dispersed of Israel. I will gather to them still others besides those already gathered. And the second reading is from Acts chapter 8. Saul agreed with putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the message of good news. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds paid attention with one mind to what Philip said as they heard and saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. A man named Simon, who previously practiced sorcery in that city and astounded the Samaritan people while claiming to be someone, somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least of them to the greatest. And they said, This man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had astounded them with his sorceries for a long time. But they believed Philip as they preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Both men and women were baptised. Then even Simon himself believed. And after he was baptised, he went around constantly with Philip and was astounded as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed. When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had welcomed God's message, they sent Peter and John to them. After they went down there, they prayed for them so the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet come down on any of them, 
they'd only been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying of the apostles' hand, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power too, so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter told him, May your silver be destroyed with you, because you thought the gift of God could be obtained with money. You have no part or share in this matter, because your heart is not right before God. Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Please pray to the Lord for me, Simon replied, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Then after they had testified and spoken the message of the Lord, they travelled back to Jerusalem, evangelising many villages of the Samaritans. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, Get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got up and went. There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch, and high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. The spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. When Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone guides me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the scripture passage he was reading was this who was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. The eunuch replied to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about, himself or another person? So Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning from that scripture. As they're travelling down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptised? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Then he ordered the chariot to stop. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptised him. When he came out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch did not see him any longer. But he went on his way rejoicing. Philip appeared in Azotus and he was travelling and evangelising all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Georgie. Good evening, everyone. My name's Andy, one of the pastors here. We're going to be looking at this great chapter tonight, Acts chapter 8. So keep that open, and as you do that, let me pray. Our Father, we do praise you that you are a speaking God, that you do not leave us in the dark. Father, we pray that you would do a powerful work in us and amongst us tonight. Please would you show us ourselves 
in your scriptures, but most of all, please show us our Saviour and help us to live for him alone. Amen. One of the things I love about uh, the gospel is its ability to dramatically transform people's lives. You know how it goes, at one minute someone's walking along minding their own business, the next they hear about Jesus and boom, they become a Christian. It's amazing, isn't it? People like Rosaria Champagne Butterfield, great name, isn't it? She said, um, as a leftist lesbian professor, I despised Christians, stupid, pointless, menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God Jesus who in paintings looked as powerful as a shampoo commercial model. Then somehow I became a Christian. How about this guy, uh, Nabil Qureshi? He's a, a devout Muslim, or was a devout Muslim. He memorized the Quran by the age of 15. But then, when he read the Bible, he became a Christian. He said that when he read the Bible, it was electric. The words leapt off the page and jump-started my heart. Amazing, isn't it? Very real, at a massive cost for him to start following Jesus. Well, how about this bloke, uh, Sean Hopwood? He was an armed robber. He, did a, he was doing a 12-year stretch in prison. He heard the gospel. And do you know what happened? Yeah. He became a Christian. Now he's married with kids, and believe it or not, he's a judge's clerk in the judicial, judicial system in America. It's hilarious, isn't it? People hear about Jesus, and they become Christians. That woman, Rosaria, calls her conversion my train wreck conversion story, because it turned her life upside down. Now, I love that stuff. It's my, one of my favorite things about being a Christian. But the thing that is my least favorite thing about being a Christian is that I don't get to see this stuff in my life or in the lives of the people that I love or or my friend's life. This stuff doesn't seem to happen in my life. I long for my family in the UK to become Christians. I long for my old work colleagues just to have a a boring conversion story, not an exciting one. I just love to see them boringly become a Christian. But instead, when I seek to talk to people about Jesus, I just seem to get these weird silences or the knockbacks and the no thank yous. You know what I'm talking about, right? Now the problem is, is that when we don't see people becoming Christians all over the place, we can easily become discouraged. You can think that, oh, somehow God must be American. He must have an American accent. They say, God bless America. Has he actually just blessed America? Or or China, 200 million Christians in China. Is God too busy to bother with Kirribilli? And my life, is he, is he just too, too busy in China? And the problem with that is, is that we keep quiet about Jesus. We keep our heads down and we keep quiet about Jesus. Oh, we still 
have hope that uh, someday God might find, bring it upon himself to come over to Kirribilli and do a work in my friend's life. But that's not real hope. That's vegetarian hope, isn't it? It's not got no substance or, or satisfaction in it. It's not solid or meaty hope. Maybe you feel like that this evening. Maybe you've got vegetarian hope. As you look at our city, as you look at your office, as you look at your friends and your family. If that is you, don't stress. Don't stress because Luke has written Acts to give us good, confident hope. Confidence that when Christians live for Jesus and speak about Jesus, God is at work. In Acts 8, we've got two very dramatic conversion stories. We've got Simon the sorcerer and the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, Next time when we come back to Acts in May, we'll hear about the miraculous conversion of Saul. And that is, uh, in many ways, the climax of this section. But these two conversions are in our Bibles to give us hope to keep living for Jesus and to give us confidence that when we speak about Jesus, when we tell people uh, the gospel of Jesus in big and small ways, God is at work. That's what I want us to take away from our passage tonight, that when we speak about Jesus, God is at work. Three points. Firstly, God is at work despite opposition. Now, if you thought being a, a Christian, uh, if you thought um, being a Christian was tricky for you, check out the, what it was like being in the Jerusalem church. Did you notice there is blood on the walls, there is panic in the streets, and in the last chapter of Acts that we uh, heard about last week, uh, we watched as a young Christian lad, Stephen, is stoned to death by the Jewish religious leaders. Now, in chapter 8, Luke tells us in verse 1, look at it with me, uh, Luke chapter 8, verse 1, he says, On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And Saul, the ringleader, he's there in verse 3, he was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. Systematically, he hunted down and locked up the Christians. He tried to put this Christian thing to bed once and for all. Now that is having a hard time being a Christian, isn't it? And as readers of Acts, we're meant to be thinking, will Saul succeed? Will he quash this Christian revolution? We're meant to be asking, is this really a movement of God? Or is it just some weirdos that are into guitar music and knitwear? Do you remember? Do you remember back in Acts chapter five, we had the Pharisee Gamaliel. He said exactly that. He said that if this movement is man-made, then it will fall on its back. But if it is a movement of God, then nothing will stop it. Now we don't have the secret police knocking on our doors at three a.m., dragging us off, but we do face opposition. We face a, a lack of interest in Jesus. We hear jokes told behind our backs about Christians. 
And sometimes uh, the opposition can lead us to think that we've been duped into following a man-made charlatan religion. Do you ever think that? During the week, I, I read about a bloke that accidentally walked onto a movie set. He actually managed to get himself apart, which was uh, hilarious. Well, when opposition comes, we Christians can find ourselves asking, if we are on God's movie set and God is supposed to be directing this movie of our lives in his world, why isn't everyone else following the script? And so we can so easily follow the world's script instead of God's script. Instead of being the trader who loves Jesus and is the missionary to the fourth floor at Deutsche Bank. We can follow the world's script and scrub out the Christian bit and start being the trader who loves his career instead of Jesus. Instead of the coffee shop evangelist, we can follow the world's script and play the coffee shop gossip because that's what everyone else in the world around us seems to be doing. You'll know the areas when you'll be tempted to follow the world's script over God's script. Opposition can make us feel like we're in a completely different movie, that we're not in God's movie, that we're in some made-up movie. But I wonder whether you can remember God's script in Acts. It's back in chapter 1, verse 8. Luke says this, oh, Jesus says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Look at what happens in chapter 8, verse 1. The Christians are scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria on God's script. Verse 4, they went on their way preaching the message of good news. The Christians are scattered, but they're not silenced. They are spirit-filled witnesses taking the gospel out of Jerusalem into Samaria and onto the ends of the earth on God's script. Friends, we need to know that the movie hasn't changed. If we are a Christian, God is directing the movie. We are on his film set and is completely in control. The God that was in control in Acts 8, as these gospel ripples go out from Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth, is at work now in the lives of you and me. And we shouldn't forget that. We are his witnesses to the ends of the earth, and we must live the gospel, and we must proclaim the gospel, because God is at work. Whatever the situation we find ourselves in. That's our next point. Uh, Philip, did you notice, he finds himself in Samaria. And Samaria is enemy, enemy territory. Uh, the Samaritans are the crossbred ancestors of the Jews. And the Jews hated the Samaritans. In John 8, the Jews use Samaritans as a swear word. Uh, the Jews say to Jesus, you are demon-possessed and a Samaritan. It gets much lower than that. Imagine you are demon-possessed and an Australian. You wouldn't think too highly about that. They really hated the Jew. Uh, they really hate the Samaritans. They put them in the same bucket as Gentiles and sorcerers. 
And so that's why Luke zooms in on this guy, Simon the sorcerer, there in verse 9. He is the epitome of Samaritan life. Uh, Verse 10, do you see they are all gripped by his sorcery, from the least to the greatest, we're told. They say this man is called the great power of God. But he's not from God, is he? Sorcery in the Bible is anti-God. But these guys, these Samaritans, hang off every word and trick. I love what uh, Philip does as he finds himself running for his life and finds himself in Samaria. Do you see what he does? Verse 5, he just keeps talking about Jesus. He's in enemy, enemy, enemy territory, and most of us would keep our heads down and our mouths shut. But Philip, he just keeps babbling away about Jesus. What happens? Well, there's no stoning like Stephen. Verse 6, they listened. They gripped. They're, they're, as gripped uh, they're as gripped by Philip as they were by Simon. And so we get verse 12. As he preached the good news about the kingdom of God, And the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women, were baptized. Miraculous enemy conversions. Even Simon the sorcerer gets in on the action. He gets saved and he gets dunked in verse 13. Philip speaks about Jesus. Samaritans are saved. And it is completely on God's script. As the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Samaria. Now that is a big deal, that the gospel going out of Jerusalem into Samaria, and it's the reason why we get this delayed giving of the Spirit in verse 17. Did you notice that? It's important, important just to stop and look at that because it's uh, uh, been quite, caused some confusion over the years. Uh, but what Luke wants us to know is that this is an authentic act of God. That the gospel they received, uh, that the gospel the Samaritans received, is exactly the same gospel they would have received in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit they received in Samaria is exactly the same Holy Spirit that they would have received in Jerusalem. See, as Peter and John lay their hands on the Samaritans, they are acting like those little holograms that you get on DVDs to show you that you're not buying a knockoff. Luke wants us to know, God wants us to know that the Samaritan Christians are not fake Christians and they're not second-rate Christians. Philip finds himself in Samaria. He lives the gospel. He speaks the gospel. And people become genuine Christians and receive the genuine Holy Spirit. Could have kept his head down. No one knew him. He could have kept quiet. No one would have thought any the less they had Simon. But he doesn't. He keeps speaking about Jesus. And we need to keep speaking about Jesus wherever we find ourselves. Because as we speak about Jesus, God is at work. Uh, Kim and I, my wife and I, have got a friend who is in her 60s. She became a Christian uh, after she was married in her 20s. Her husband isn't a Christian. And so she's had a a difficult marriage, a difficult life. It hasn't been easy. Um, But now that she's retired, every year they go on a posh cruise. And do you know what she does on this posh cruise? She loves Jesus. 
And the first thing she does is she gets an A4 piece of paper and sticks it up on the ship's notice board and advertises her evangelistic Bible study. And then she spends the whole cruise going round talking to people about Jesus. I'm sure um, her husband is embarrassed by it. I'm sure the people who have paid their thousands of dollars for their nice cruise uh, don't like it much. I'm sure the ship doesn't advertise her Bible study in the, in the daily itinerary. But she loves Jesus. And she knows that when she speaks about Jesus, God is at work. She knows that God is in control. She knows that God is at work and will save people as she speaks about Jesus. I think often we can wait for the right conditions to share Jesus with people, can't we? We can think, oh, I just need to massage this situation, get it into the right place, and maybe then I might be able to slip in something about church uh, last night. Philip doesn't do that. He just speaks about Jesus because he knows that when he speaks about Jesus, God is at work. He has been at work uh, before he gets there and will be at work in Samaria after he leaves. That's our third point tonight. God is at work before you and after you. That's what we see with the uh, Ethiopian eunuch. Now, I had a long conversation about eunuchs over lunch today. Uh, people, a couple of people didn't know what eunuchs were, so we went the whole uh, 15 minutes, and uh, not, people went the whole 15 minutes not knowing what eunuchs are. No testicles, right? That's what a eunuch is. Let's just clear it up. Uh, verse 17, we get this eunuch. He is loaded. He is in charge of the queen's treasury. He works for the queen of Ethiopia. That's probably modern-day Sudan. Now, for this gig, for this job, you needed a very special set of skills. I'm not sure what came first, whether it was the job or whether it was the eunuch, and I can't imagine what the job ad said. You thought your job was bad, right? But that's not the point, all right? Don't get distracted by eunuchs. Um, What we need to see here is that God has been at work in this eunuch's life before Philip got to him, is at work now Philip gets to him, and will be at work after Philip leaves. Just look at verse 26, and you can see the big setup. An angel sets up the meeting. He says, uh, get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Philip goes. Verse 29, Luke says, the spirit told Philip to join that chariot. Can you imagine the conversation? He's in in the desert, uh, Ethiopian, his mind, his own business. All right, mate, what are you up to? Reading Isaiah. Can I join you? Angel told me. Angels don't appear in every page of the Bible. They crop up at important events, important milestones in the Bible. And we get an angel here because God is setting up this dramatic conversion. See, it's no accident. It's orchestrated by God. God is at work now. But did you notice that God has also been at work before Philip got there? So we see, verse 27, that the eunuch had come to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. Verse 30, we see that he has been reading the Jewish Bible. He's working his way through Isaiah, having a nice quiet time on his chariot. See, this is not 
a bank robber conversion. The eunuch is low-hanging fruit, so to speak. I think he would have become a Jew had he not been a eunuch. Eunuchs couldn't become Jews. We've heard that in Isaiah. They are the outcast, the foreigner. They're not privy to becoming a Jew. But God sends Philip to seal the deal. He's stuck into Isaiah 53, verse 7, and he reads it out to Philip. He says, He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before its shearers, so he does not open his mouth. Philip knows that God has promised that God will rescue mankind through a suffering servant, through someone dying like a sheep, silent before shearers, silent before uh, before the people that slaughter it. And the eunuch doesn't know who, who that's talking about. Well, Philip says, let me tell you. This is verse 35. So Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus. Philip told him all that he needed to know to become a Christian. He told him that the lamb that would take the transgressions of the world, that would take the sin of the world on himself was Jesus, the the suffering servant that would rescue mankind from hell for heaven was Jesus. The eunuch knew what needed to happen. He had all the pieces. God had given given them to him before that point. Philip just had to come along and tell him, that's all about Jesus. Verse 38, he believed and is baptized. And the gospel has started to go to the ends of the earth. You see how God has been at work before Philip and is at work after Philip. And you need to know that God has been at work in your friendships and in your networks before you got there, now that you are in them, and he will continue to work in those people after you have left those friendships, long after you leave those friendships. I had an email uh, the other, well, last year now. I had an email last year from a work colleague that I used to work with 10 years ago. I haven't spoken to her for 10 years. I had a couple of chats with her over a beer while we were out with work, work drinks about Jesus, I think. I can barely remember them. Anyway, she was quite hostile. I think she was always one of those people that was hostile about everything, especially about Jesus. Anyway, she emailed me to tell me that she became a Christian last year. Amazing, isn't it? Amazing. The person who you'd least expect to become a Christian, who just wanted to fight you about Jesus, emails to say, oh, by the way, I became a Christian. God was working in her long before I got there. He barely worked while I was there, as far as I could tell. And he was at work in her after I left. And he's at work in your friends. I think sometimes we doubt God's sovereignty, don't we? We think uh, that God can't do that, that God is not in control. Or perhaps we think too highly of ourselves, that it's all about how articulate we are, how well we can articulate the gospel, how well we can argue apologetically, all those kind of things. We need to equip ourselves. We need to be able to share the gospel in a simple way that people can understand. We need to be able to answer people's questions. But we need to know that God is at work before us, through us as we speak about Jesus, and will be at work after we leave them. 
What would you say if God would put someone like the eunuch in your lives? How would you explain the gospel if they said, tell me what this Christian thing is all about in 30 seconds? Would you be able to tell them how you became a Christian and why you became a Christian over a cup of tea? Lizzie told me that at their old church, they, had to, they were made to uh, tell, be able to share their testimony before the end of a match burnt down. Is that right, Lizzie? Yes. Could you do that? We need to equip ourselves like that. If you uh, are in your first or your second job, I want to encourage you to make the most of those relationships that God has put you in. Make the most of those conversations that you have in the office when people go out for drinks on a Thursday night and ask you what you do at the weekends. Make the most of them. Invest in a few people. Be there when they get divorced. Be there when their wives die. That's happened to me the last couple of years. Be there and be there with the news of Jesus. God is working in those people before you got there, while you are with them, and after you leave. See, God is at work as you speak about Jesus. Through our feeble efforts, through our blurted out words, through our misplaced insensitivities. He works through us and it's a joy to watch him at work through ordinary, spirit-filled people speaking the simple gospel into ordinary people's lives. He is at work through us and in us. And when we're not there, despite what we see with our eyes, In a minute, we're going to do just what I've said. Uh, We're going to just spend some time, just briefly, 20, 30 seconds, sharing how we heard the gospel, how we became a Christian. We're just going to do it where we stand and do it where we are. But I just want to finish by telling you the story of Albert, just to send us on our way before we do that and give you a chance to think. I want to finish with telling you about Albert. Albert was a 24-year-old farm worker, He'd been a Christian just over a year, and he really wanted his friends, well, everyone he knew, to hear about Jesus. Anyway, he'd had the knockbacks, he'd had the silences and the no thank yous. And one day, a famous preacher came to his hometown, so he thought, great, I'll give it another crack, I'll invite everyone I know. And uh, one of the people that he invited was his boss's 16-year-old son. Now, the kid wasn't interested And uh, Albert really wanted him to come, so he bribed him by saying, if you come, you can drive my truck to the meeting. So Albert, wanting to get behind the wheel underage, said he would do it. I'm sorry, this this kid wanted to get behind the wheel, so he went, agreed to go. He didn't go into the meeting, he stayed outside. But from outside the meeting, he could hear the preacher. And he was gripped and captivated by the words he heard and became a Christian. Amazing, isn't it? A normal invite to a normal gospel talk resulted in a life being turned upside down. What's more extraordinary was that the farm worker was called Albert McMakin. Never heard of him. But the boss's son, well, he was called Billy Graham. And the rest is history. See, God is at work through ordinary people like you and me spirit-filled people with the news of Jesus 
being spoken into ordinary lives. Let's pray and then we'll spend some time sharing. Heavenly Father, we are sorry when we have doubted your sovereignty, when we have thought too highly of our own abilities, when we have doubted your plan and doubted what you're up to in the world. Father, we pray that we would have confidence in your spirit, that we might tell people about Jesus. Help us to have confidence that you are at work in your world, carrying out your plan of salvation. Father, we pray that you would equip us and make us bold to tell people about Jesus, where we are, whatever situation we find ourselves in, and long after we've gone. In Jesus' name, amen.